When I was growing up, I played, uh, my dad taught me a game when I was eight years old, and it was the game of risk. How many of you have played risk before? Okay, I only saw men raise their hands. That's about right. Ladies, you don't know what risk is because it is a total man's game, right guys? It's about what? War and world domination. And there's like five teams or, or so, or maybe there's six, and you, you, you have your armies, and you've got the world map, and you move your armies, and you roll the dice, and you try to defeat your opponents. And uh, the, the one thing about the game of Risk is that every, it's every man for himself. All the teams are trying to destroy one another. And, and the guys that gather around a risk table, they're inevitably men that just they, they latch on to this concept of world domination. Right, Scott? Right. Every man for himself. That is the point of the game of risk. Well, today in our study in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, we are going to come to a point of world domination. A point where the kingdoms are in crisis and are coming to an end. But this kingdom that will replace it is not a kingdom that is interested in global domination. Quite the contrary. The kingdom of Christ that replaces the final kingdom of this world will actually be a kingdom in which Jesus brings all of us with Him and says, I want you to join Me in ruling and reigning in this final kingdom. The title of my message today is the second part in our series in Daniel 7 entitled, The Four Beasts in the Final Kingdom, Part 2, The Kingdom of Christ and the Saints. The kingdom of Christ and the saints. We hear so much about the the final kingdom being a kingdom of Jesus Christ. But how often do we also note that according to Scripture, Jesus wishes to share it with you and me. Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. And we'll come there in just a second. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. In Daniel 7, we come to a vision of the future that Daniel had not long before Babylon was conquered. And in it, Daniel saw four animals, four beasts. And we come to learn that these four beasts, like the four parts of the statue in Daniel 2, represent four world empires and their kings. So let's take a look at these beasts one more time in the statue. Number one, we have Babylon who represents the head of gold in chapter 2 and then the lion in chapter 7. Secondly, We have Medo-Persia, the chest of silver in chapter 2 of Daniel, and also represented by a bear in chapter 7. Thirdly, Greece, the the thighs and the legs of of bronze represented by um, the cougar, the leopard, I'm sorry, my goodness, I'm, I'm mixing up my felines. The leopard, thank you. And finally, we have the empire of Rome, represented by the legs of iron, indicated by a fourth and final dreadful beast that almost defies description, that has ten horns on its head, and one little horn that begins to manifest itself as taking control of this final beast. All four beasts... All four kingdoms occur one right after the other. And we learned that last week. I encourage you to go back last week if you missed it. We have the the empire of Babylon, which was conquered by 
Persia and King Cyrus, which was conquered by ultimately by Alexander in Greece, which was eventually overcome by the Roman Empire. Successive kingdoms, successive empires. And immediately, after Daniel is done describing the Roman Empire and her pompous king called the Little Horn, the vision turns to another scene. It turns heavenward, interestingly enough. We pick up the story in verse 9. Daniel writes, And I watched. Now again, he's having a vision here. I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. And his garment was white as snow. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning, uh, burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from him, from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and for a time. Heaven. The scene is heaven. Undeniably. Not only is this heaven, it's a particular moment in heaven if we can speak of, of time in heaven. It is a day of judgment. The court was seated. The books were opened. In verse 10. Verse 11, I watched because the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, I watched till the fourth beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. I refer you to Revelation 20, verse 12, to read another moment in which the books were opened. And that happens at the great white throne judgment. Well, the judgment we see here was likely just prior, uh, uh, excuse me, was certainly prior to that. It happened actually at the onset of the millennial kingdom. We'll learn about that in just a minute. Make no mistake, this is a day of judgment in heaven. Daniel 7.12 says that when the former beasts, when the former world empires were conquered, their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. That is to say, uh, their people groups and their customs to an extent carried on. When Babylon was conquered, Persia incorporated much of Babylon into her. When, Greece, when Persia was conquered, Greece incorporated some of their culture and customs and people into her. And so on and so forth all the way through. Those previous empires continued on for a season and for a time. But not so with this last world empire. So Daniel writes, it is said that the fourth beast, that is Rome, was judged, was executed then and there by Almighty God and His body was sent to the burning flame. But then last week we asked the question, how can that be? How can it be that God Almighty destroyed Rome and its king? Did the Roman Empire fall in the same manner described here in Daniel? History says no. I spoke last week of the nature of, of Rome's fall. History tells us that Rome's fall was a gradual one. But Daniel 7 indicates that it occurred swiftly. When Rome fell in 410 A.D., the empire continued in some form all the way to the time of Constantinople in 1453. So history shows us that Rome, the Roman Empire, that even after the time of Constantinople in 1453, that we've gone on to have over 600 years of human history that continues right now. 600 years 
of earthly kingdoms, of earthly kings, of different peoples here on this earth, over 600 years since the time of Rome. But Daniel 7 indicates that after Rome came the judgment of God. Well, how can this be? How does Daniel go from seeing Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome to heaven? The answers, as we said last time, are found in the book of Daniel. And we will be reading them both today and in our successive studies. But the answers are also found in a vision given by another man, given, uh, given by the Lord to another man, John, some 600 years after the time of Daniel. We looked at this last week. Let's look at it one more time. Revelation 13, the Apostle John sees this. Then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, that is Satan, gave him power. Gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. He was given authority, this beast was, to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. The beast of Revelation 13 is also the beast of Daniel 7. To say otherwise is to ignore a great litany of evidence. Daniel 7 said, these beasts rise out of the sea. So also says it in Revelation 13. Daniel 7 says this fourth and final beast has ten horns. So also does John say the same thing in Revelation 13. Daniel said that the beasts prior to him were like a leopard, like a bear, like a lion. And so also, John sees a beast who incorporates all of the terrible and awful characteristics of of the kingdoms prior to it all incorporated into one. Daniel said that a little horn protruded from this fourth and final beast speaking pompous words. What does John say? This beast was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and blasphemy against God to blaspheme His name, His tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It is clear, very clear, from Revelation 13, that the beast John saw is none other than the final world ruler. And it is also the same beast that Daniel saw. This final world ruler who will come to power at the time of the Great Tribulation. Now, we know this ruler by many names. And in fact, the Bible knows him by many names. Paul called him this, the man of sin. He also called him the son of perdition and the lawless one. There was another man though. Uh, Isaiah called him the Assyrian. And then Daniel after him called him the little horn and also the king of the north. He also called him the beast. And then Daniel and John together called him what you, or, or excuse me, John called him what you and I know him today popularly as the Antichrist. All these names in Scripture descriptive of this final world ruler. Man of sin, son of perdition, lawless one, Assyrian, little horn, king of the north, beast, antichrist. There are many other names actually for him if you continue to study the Scriptures on that matter. If the beast of Revelation 13 is in fact 
in the Beast of Daniel 7, uh, is in fact this final world ruler of the Great Tribulation, then we have an answer for how Daniel makes this jump. Daniel goes from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome to heaven. How does he do it? Because after the close of the Roman Empire, there will be a time, we're in it now, a time of the Gentiles, a time of the church age, and that at the end of this time, there will be a revival of that fourth empire. A revival. That's what many, many scholars today call a revived, a revived Roman Empire. There will be a revival, according to Revelation 13 and Daniel 7, of this final world empire. And in its final form, in its final revived Roman form, it will manifest itself in a king, the man of sin, son of perdition, the lawless one, the beast. If, in fact, if, in fact, this timeline is accurate, and it is the timeline of Daniel, then we should expect, right, that after this man of sin, after this final beast, would come what? The kingdom of our Lord. Well, that's exactly what Daniel says. Take a look now at verse 13. That's exactly where Daniel goes. In verse 13, he writes this. He says, And I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Daniel sees Jesus in his vision. He doesn't know what His name is. So He calls Him one like the Son of Man. And Jesus comes with the clouds of heaven in this vision. And isn't it interesting that when, when Jesus arose to heaven in Acts 1, what did the angels tell the apostles? The apostles were looking up and they were like, where did He go? And the angel comes and says, why are you looking at the sky? The angel looks at them and says in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who you saw taken up into heaven, will so come in the manner you saw Him go. In fulfillment of Acts 1.11, Jesus will descend with the clouds. Just like He ascended in Acts 1.11. Jesus comes to God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and is given dominion and glory and eternal kingdom that will not pass away, never be destroyed, where everyone, all peoples, nations, and languages serve Him. Welcome to the Millennial Kingdom. This is the Millennial Kingdom. And this makes sense of Daniel's timeline. How do we go from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome to heaven? Because there's an interlude. Because there's a church age. Because there's a time of the Gentiles. And then at the end of that time of the Gentiles will be a final man of sin. And at the end of that man will be the kingdom of our Lord. Amen? Do you know you're going to go there? Do you know you're going to go there? Those of you who have believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are going to the kingdom of Christ. You are going to be there in the Millennial Kingdom. When we die, we immediately go to heaven to be with the Lord. And at the end of this earthly age, we will come with Jesus 
We will come with Him back to the earth to rule on the earth, the millennial earth, in the kingdom of Christ. And then when the thousand years are over, our final destination, our eternal destination, will be a place that defies all expectations. We will go to live eternally with Jesus on the new earth, the very place where Jesus said He was preparing for us in John 14. You know, we've, uh, my wife, uh, she moved so much as a kid. She moved like year after year after year, she would move. Her dad was in real estate and there was always a, a nice house right around the corner and he would take that deal and they would move the family time and time again. And uh, she got tired of moving. But one thing was clear as she moved each and every time, she always went to the home that she was going to to check out her room. She would always, you know, walk in the new home and, and kind of inspect things, check out the kitchen, the living area, and, and find out what her new room was going to be like so that she could prepare for it. You know, normally, before we move, and if you've ever moved residences before, I'm sure you have, we go and we, we check out the place. We look around. We consider the backyard and, and the view and the neighborhood. Why do we do these things? Because we like to know what we're getting into. Can you imagine? Moving to a new place and never having gone to see it? Can you imagine moving into a new home and having never inspected it once with your eyes? Maybe some of you in the military have done that. But for most of us, that is a very foreign concept. Almost always we like to go ahead of time and find out what's in store for us. J.C. Ryle writes this. He says, You are leaving the land of your nativity. You are going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. And it would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. Before we go to our eternal home, we should try to become acquainted with it. Does that look like you when you pack up? thought so. Does that make sense or what? We don't live here. Paul said, this is not my home. My home is there with the Lord. My home ultimately is on the new earth when Jesus makes all things new. And and if we are here on this earth and all we are is just looking at this earth, blinded to the life to come, then we are a strange group of people. When you move, you go inspect where you're going. And so also, you are going to move. You who have believed in Jesus Christ, you, this home is not your home. This earth is not your home. You will ultimately go to heaven and to the millennial kingdom and finally to the new earth that Jesus has prepared for you. You will live in these three places before, uh, after you die. And the Bible has much to say about these three places. And so I want you to read about it and get to know about it. Get to know where you will spend all of eternity. Rarely, if ever, would we not inspect a new home. So get to know your eternal home as Jesus and the apostles told us to do. Daniel's vision continues. Verse 15. Then it happened... When I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai who called and said, Gabriel, uh oh my goodness, I'm in the wrong section. 
Look at that. I'm reading chapter 8. I was like, boy, I don't remember studying this part. I'm going to have to make it up as I go now. All right, let's go back to chapter 7, verse 15. The other 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head, they troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all of this. And so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now, though we've already moved ahead in our study, okay, we've already, we've already covered much of this. We've moved ahead with some of the interpretation of the earlier parts of Daniel 7. But Daniel himself, in the vision, had not at this point understood all things. And so he turned to someone. He turned to someone near him, presumably an angel, of course, and asked him to interpret the things that he saw. And the angel's response was simple and straightforward. He says the four beasts are four kings, but not just four kings, even though he, he indicates simply four kings. Later on, that same angel is going to liken them to kingdoms as well. And so you might take king and kingdom collectively there, as he will say later in verse 23. Uh, so the angel says these four beasts are four kings, four kingdoms. Okay, nothing new so far. But then he says this, the angel says, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now, of course, the angel now speaks of the millennial kingdom of Christ. And he emphasizes another group of people that will possess the kingdom. Not just Jesus, our Lord, but also the saints of the Most High. And this isn't to minimize Jesus' power or His authority. Jesus is the King of the Millennial Kingdom. But beginning here and continuing to the end of the chapter, the angel who's interpreting this vision for Daniel speaks very highly of the role of believers in the coming Kingdom. You know, uh, companies, uh, uh, companies on earth are structured differently, Right? You have some companies with a single owner, and that owner controls all the operations and all the profits. Uh, you have other companies in which uh, there's a, a, some, a measure of a board of directors maybe, and others who are given certain shares of the company. Other companies go public, and they offer their shares to everyone, a shared ownership. But then there are some companies, uh, like this one, Pod Dog on a Stick. I know you're getting hungry now. Um, maybe you're not. How many of you like hot dog on a stick? Two of you. Okay, good. Then there's this company and its founder, Dave Barham, who does something a little different, something that most companies don't do. Dave Barham instituted in the early 90s a system uh, in which the employees, it's called the Employee Stock Ownership Plan, in which the employees 100% own the company. His employees own hot dog on a stick. They are all given a vested interest in the company. All the employees can buy in to the company and to its share of profits and ultimately have a retirement based on the company's future, based on the company's growth. A 100% employee stock ownership plan. In essence, Barham, Dave Barham believed that if his employees owned 100% of the company, they would work harder, that they might enjoy a greater standard of living as the company grew. Well, guess what? Inasmuch as Jesus is the owner, the founder 
of the millennial kingdom. Jesus is also intent on giving you and me a measure of ownership in His kingdom. Each one of us who have believed in Jesus will have a role to play. We won't be bumps on a log watching Jesus conduct every affair. No, the Bible says we will co-rule with Him. We will co-reign with Him. And actually, the Apostle John speaks of this briefly in Revelation 5. Look what John writes in Revelation 5. He says, You, Jesus, were slain and have redeemed us to God by Your blood uh, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Vested interest in His employees, so to speak. Jesus gives the kingdom to you and I. He lets us be kings and priests to God in the millennial kingdom. And that's why you see time and time again the Bible speaking of rewards and rulership and crowns. Prizes, if you will, to those Christians who have performed well in this earth. And we don't have time today to get into all the details of what it means to co-reign with Christ or to rule in the millennial kingdom. But, but perhaps it's a topical study we will do at the end of Daniel. It's a fascinating study and one certainly worthy of, of great exploration. Know this, you will have a great share. And that that share will be contingent upon your obedience here and now in this earth. The employees at Hot Dog on a Stick It's a simple job, but if they work hard enough and the company grows, they're going to be benefited by it. So also, you, if you work hard enough, and if you labor long and hard and persevere and endure to the end, especially those who endure to the end, Jesus says, you will have a great portion in the Kingdom of Heaven. But now, Daniel asks for even greater clarification on another part. Look at verse 19, this time of chapter 7. Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was exceedingly, uh, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured or broke in pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three horns fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. And I was watching, Daniel said, And the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. We learn a few more things now about this fourth beast and the little horn that comes up out of it that solidifies, by the way, its identity as the man of sin. Verse 21 indicates that Daniel saw the little horn was making war against the saints and prevailing. Verse 21, he was making war against the saints and prevailing. Once again, the parallels with John's vision in Revelation ring true. Take a look at what John saw. Revelation 13, and it was granted to him, that is the beast, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him, the beast, over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Just like Daniel saw, so also John sees. Daniel sees a fourth beast, the little horn that rises up, this great king, this final world ruler. And this, this horn, represented by the, this final beast, is waging war against the saints and winning. And John also sees the same thing. He sees a beast 
a, fourth, a, a final and dreadful beast, this final world ruler who, who for a time will be winning against the saints, will be prevailing against all peoples. But then, Daniel 7.22 indicates that this war against the saints of God will come to an end. Notice verse 22. We're going to highlight it here. It came to an end. When? When the Ancient of Days came. And a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Did John see this? You bet he did. Take a look at John 17 and notice now what John saw in great parallel to what Daniel saw. Revelation 17, and these, that is the ten horns or the ten kings, are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast and they will make war with the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them for He is Lord of lords and King of kings and those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. By now, Daniel is beginning to piece together the interpretation of the vision which he had. And the angel who's helping him understand these words has some, has some final offerings that we'll see in just a minute. But look here at the parallels. Look at these parallels. They're fascinating. The beast, the little horn in Daniel 7, will prevail for a time. So also, John says the exact same thing. He'll start winning for a time. The beast again... He'll, he'll prevail when? Until the time that God comes and intervenes. What does John say? He'll overcome until the time that the Lamb of God comes and intervenes. We come now to some final words of summary. This coming from the angel who's interpreting the vision for Daniel. Look at verse 23. Thus he said, the angel said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it to pieces. The ten horns are ten kings, who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. And he shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue, subdue three kings. And he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, shall intend to change times and law, then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Here we have much of the statement aligns with what we already know, with what we've already learned. But a few things stand out. I've highlighted them in red and in blue. In red, we see the final beast will intend to change times and law for this final little horn. Now from Daniel's perspective, we can be relatively sure that what he means by this uh, is not really is specifically times and customs of the Jewish religious observance. You see, Daniel wasn't interested um, in upholding, if you will, the law and the customs of the Babylonians. He didn't have a vested interest in some of their pagan laws and customs. But he did have a vested interest in honoring the Lord his God and in honoring the, the observances of his people. And any time uh, he and his friends were faced with a choice to honor the Babylonian law or to honor the Jewish law, they chose the Jewish law. When, the, when, when Nebuchadnezzar set up the golden statue in uh, chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down to worship it. Later on, when Darius signed a decree that said, no one can worship anyone but me, Daniel refused to worship 
Darius. He instead solely focused on worshiping the Lord his God. And so Daniel, um, so Daniel, when he said this, that this final king would be intent on changing law and times, uh, how does he word it in, in verse uh, in verse 25, shall intend to change times and law, we can be sure that what Daniel meant by that was Jewish customs, Jewish times, Jewish observances. So also the last ruler will set in motion certain laws and customs that will fly in the face of those who worship God. Do you know that we're seeing foreshadows of this today? We've, we've seen it actually all, all over human history. But even today specifically, uh, you look up uh, 500 miles north of here, in the city of San Francisco, do you know what they tried to outlaw recently? Circumcision. Circumcision. A Jewish religious observance. And the city of San Francisco, on the grounds of health concerns, said, we're going to try and outlaw circumcision. Uh, thankfully, you know, it didn't pass. I mean, what, what a ludicrous law. Changing times and law. That's what the final world ruler will do. Specifically, Jewish observances. Those who are uh, ultimately going to follow the Lord as, as the Jews will turn to the Lord in the last days. And then here today, we have evidence of, uh, in, in Iran. We just made mention of it earlier uh, before this message that uh, the Iranian Supreme Court are condemning a man to death for conversion from, his, to his, from Islam to Christianity. Pastor Yusuf Nadarkhani is on trial and faces potential execution because of his conversion. But there is no provision in the Iranian law to kill a man for his conversion. And so they're trying to move laws. They're trying to change their customs to try and move things around so that they might be able to execute this man. And we, of course, are praying against that. The final world ruler will modify, will move benchmarkers, will change times, will change laws, will change customs, particularly against those Christians and Jews. Against those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ or against God's people. And when you see nations and kings and kingdoms doing this, know assuredly that it is a foreshadow of what is to come. But then there's a second thing that's new in this section in which the angel interprets for Daniel. And it is highlighted in blue there. It says the final beast will be given power over the saints for a time and times and half a time. Although the word for time here does not necessarily mean years, it is the most likely interpretation. And if it means years, then the word time, a year, and times, two years, and half a time, a half year, that amounts to three and one half years which aligns quite neatly with the apocalypse of John. Notice what John says about this three and a half years. He writes, So they, the world, worship the dragon, that is Satan, who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who's like the beast? Who's able to make war uh, with him? And he, the beast, was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Add that up. Three and a half years. A time and times and half a time. Time and again, Daniel and John read collectively as they ought to be. Help us to clarify and bring understanding to what will happen in the last days. 
And as they both told us, the fourth and final kingdom, the fourth and final world ruler will be an awful and a terrible man, but his time will come to an end. Notice verse 26 as we come to the conclusion. And the visions of the... Uh, excuse me, verse 26. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion the dominion of the beast, to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey Him. This is the end of the account. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. The angel reminds Daniel of the end of these things. God's court will commence. This final beast will be destroyed. And of this same moment, John tells us explicitly how that will happen in the last day. Look at Revelation 19. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Verse 21, And the rest were killed with a sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is how John sees this final battle. This final conclusion, if you will. To the great tribulation that precedes the millennial kingdom of our Lord. Once again, we see um, parallels time and again. Daniel and John. Daniel and John speaking one right after the other in perfect cooperation and harmony. And the angel in Daniel concludes this in verse 27. He says, Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Once again, did you see, we have an emphasis on the shared rulership of the coming millennial kingdom. Between Jesus, of course, the King, but also between you and I, believers in Him. We shall all serve Him. We shall all obey Him. But as gracious as God is, He will also give us great ownership and rulership with Him in this kingdom. And Daniel closes the vision with these words. He says, this is the end of the account. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. We'll close here with this. You know, given the fact, it was puzzling to me, given the fact of the end of this, right? The angel concludes. And the angel's speaking to Daniel in this vision. It says, Daniel, you know, all these things are going to happen. All these kingdoms and all these kings. And in the end, Daniel, the Lord is going to put His court in order. And the books are going to be opened. And that final beast, that little horn, is going to be judged and slain. And His kingdom will disintegrate. And it will be replaced by the kingdom of our Lord, that Son of Man that you saw coming with the clouds. You'd think that Daniel would be encouraged right then and there. You'd think that he would be excited, that he would be glad, that he would be encouraged in his, in his spirit and in his heart for what he had heard. But what does it say? 
It says, as for me, Daniel, and he's speaking in the first person now, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. You know, we don't, we're not told why, his, uh, why he was so troubled. The Bible doesn't speak to that. Daniel doesn't write any, anything further. Um, but John Phillips had a pretty good speculation in his commentary, and I wanted to close with this. He writes this. He says, we can picture the celestial beings looking with astonishment at Daniel's face. Daniel was troubled, baffled by the angel's words. It showed on his face. And the angel, well, he could rejoice at the certain outcome. But it was not him or his people who were, who were to face the stormy centuries ahead. The angel's interest was academic. His point of focus was the glorious outcome. But Daniel was deeply upset because such a terrible tribulation lay in store for his people. He could not shrug that off. Phillips continues, he says, We can be taken up with the study of prophecy, with this and with that and other aspects of prophetic truth. But the saint of God, however, the saint of God, he feels the iron in his soul. And like Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, he cannot divorce his feelings from the facts of the trouble still to come. Daniel could not, nor can we. That's a pretty good guess why Daniel was so troubled. It's because this angel could speak of the outcome and of the the final verdict and could speak of it academically and as a matter of fact. But Daniel knew in his heart of hearts that during the time of the Great Tribulation, when this final beast comes, when this little horn manifests himself, this man of sin, this lawless one, this son of perdition, that he will kill millions and millions and millions of people. That He will ravage the earth. That He will destroy Christians and Jews just because of their religion. That He will be a man who appears in the early parts of His reign to be a man of peace. But in the latter part of His reign will be the dreadful man that Daniel and John describe Him to be. Daniel was troubled not because he didn't want the kingdom of Christ, but because he knew that leading up to it, it would be a great time of dread. And he wished, like Jesus wished, and like Paul wished after him, he wished that he himself could be accursed to save his people. You know, we've dealt with a lot of uh, academic truth here in Daniel. And we'll continue to go through uh, great uh, interpretations and great visions of the future and of the end. And it's one, it's one thing to know and to know in our heads what will happen. It's another thing to know in our hearts what is to come. And I ask you the simple question, does it motivate you to speak of the Gospel of Jesus Christ? It should. Daniel couldn't keep silent and nor can we. Are you motivated, knowing the dread that is ahead, are you motivated to share Jesus with others? Because without Him, they will follow this beast. They will follow the dragon, Satan. And they will follow Him to their death. But we, we have the words of life. To whom else shall we go? But to Jesus. Let's take others there with us.
Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this time in Your Word. I thank You, Lord. It was an exciting time of study for me and I pray that now we've been given and imparted this truth to lay hold of and to let it sink like iron deep into our soul. Lord, ultimately, Lord, I ask that it would motivate us that the, 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 that the knowledge of this dreadful beast, this final man of sin, and of Satan's lies that are ahead, that, that, that knowledge of this would spur us on to warn others and to teach others of Jesus Christ and of salvation that is only found in Him. Lord, help us to be Your ambassadors, to speak often and freely of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the hope that we have in Him. In His name we pray. Amen.